0: Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. All right. So uh, beginning last week, we announced that our our intention was to focus on the attributes and acts of God, which highlight how God is worthy of our worship. And so last Sunday, um, we looked at the first half of Psalm 19, which emphasizes how the creation reveals to us the glory of God. Nature while it's not literally a book or a scroll, is nevertheless a volume of communication from God. And it tells us that a powerful, glorious creator God exists behind the creation. But this Psalm says more than that. In verse seven, it pivots from focusing on nature, thank you, uh, as a revelation from God, to focusing on scripture as a revelation from God. And so it's the scripture that we now turn our attention this morning. And in particular, I want to look at the ways that scripture shows its author to be worthy of our worship. All right. So how does, um, scripture do that? How is scripture, um, a compendium of, of, uh, of knowledge or communication from God that, uh, elicits from us uh, worship, and adoration, and praise. That's what we'll be looking at um, for a few minutes this morning. All right, Um, the first, uh, or one of the lines from Psalm 19 says, the law of the Lord is perfect. That's from Psalm 19, verse 7, and um, it's perfect because its author is perfect. It's perfect because the God who uh, communicates it to us Is perfect. And so that's what we're gonna look at uh, this morning. Okay, first of all, uh, the Word of God reveals God's glory. We've been talking about glory a lot, and the Word of God reveals that to us. Creation is a true uh, revelation from God, but it's also an incomplete revelation from God. When we take in the beauty and the splendor of the stars, we're listening, in a sense, to the voice of God. That's what Psalm 19 says. Uh, one and following say when they say it declares nature declares the heavens the stars and so on declare the glory of god it is a revelation from god and it is so because nature creation the heavens everything in in the cosmos um was spoken into existence by god psalm 33 uh verse uh, uh six says by the word of the lord the um I got to hold on a second. I got to get out of the mode because I'm seeing all y'all, and I need to see my PowerPoint. There we go. Either either that, or we'll have the left half of every passage. I quote, "But the word of the Lord, uh, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts." So God spoke all the heavens into existence. So it's no wonder that um, that they communicate God. But nature can only take us so far, and that's the point. It may show God's existence and power. Uh, It may illustrate for his people, at least, who are believers, some of God's attributes, like his faithfulness, his goodness that we looked at last week. We can see that from the regular order of heavenly the movements of the heavenly bodies. But without the revelation of Scripture, nature alone wouldn't tell us that there was a personal God in the first place, or that he desires a relationship with people in the first place, or that he's characterized by traits like faithfulness. We wouldn't really know that. He might be really powerful and powerful enough to create creation, but maybe he's a sinister God, an evil God. We we have to have the specific revelation of Scripture to tell us uh, specific things about the character of our God, and so Scripture completes the portrait of God that nature only begins to roughly sketch an outline of. Think of it like a full portrait fleshed out, when you have nature and scripture, if you only have nature, it's sort of just the bare outline, the beginnings of a portrait. And so we do need scripture. Psalm 19:1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. we got going here? All right. The heavens declare the glory of God. And then in verse 7, the law of the Lord, the law. the the Torah, the the instructions from God. So both of these are in this psalm, and together they complete uh, this portrait of God or this revelation from God, if you will, that um, gives us reasons to be worshipful as we interact with God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about uh, how both of these are necessary. It says, the scripture proclaims God to be the creator of heaven and earth, many psalms summon us to bring him honor praise and thanksgiving there is however no single psalm which speaks only of the creation it is always the god who has already revealed himself to his people in his word who is said to be known as the creator of the world we worship the creator who has revealed himself as the redeemer and then he talks about psalm 19 the text that we kind of have under the microscope today psalm 19 cannot speak of the splendor of the movement of the heavenly bodies without at the same time mentioning in abrupt and unexpected insertions the much greater splendor of the revelation of God's law and the call to repentance, all right? Well, there's a couple of ways then that uh, that, um, the word of God reveals God's glory. One is that it it describes God's traits using what uh, Tremper Longman calls a vocabulary of glory. There are certain words that are often used, especially in the Old Testament, to talk about God and and his nature, his character. And so, just using this descriptive vocabulary of glory uh, is one of the ways that Scripture elicits from us uh, feelings and thoughts that are worshipful. Second way is that Scripture narrates the actions of God in the world, and those actions are said to be glorious, they are full of glory. And so, in doing these two things, using this vocabulary and narrating these actions of God in history, in the world, Scripture thereby produces human praise. It provokes worship, at least it's supposed to. So, let's talk about each of those very briefly in turn. The Old Testament has a lot of descriptive terms that are used to describe God. A lot of Hebrew words that are used together uh, in, in a collage often, sometimes interchangeably, actually to convey God's glory. And it's actually harder to find some of them because they sort of bleed over into one another. The most central of those is the word for glory itself. We've talked about this a lot. Here we go, Matt. Habod. Did I have enough uh, action in the deep throat there? But also, and that's the idea of weightiness, and sometimes because somebody is so important or weighty, they are said to have honor or splendor. Or something like that so sometimes that's where you get the other ideas of glory about something being brilliant or splendid but the basic idea is weight or substance or importance and there are other words in this vocabulary of glory words like beauty splendor majesty excellence and strength often used in uh, the Old Testament to talk about God's nature and God's character Psalm 96 is a good example a lot of these just sort of piled on top of each other in Psalm 96 And in verses 4 through 6, he says this, and notice the words in red. These are some of these words that often appear with the word glory to describe the character of God, um, the special vocabulary of glory. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And these descriptions of God in Scripture should lead us to glorify God, and glorify is actually the verb form of the, wor- the, the, the word habod. I think it's habed or something like that. Um, Psalm 96 calls upon us to ascribe glory to his name in the immediately following verses. Psalm 96, verse 7 beginning, says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. That's us. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. In other words, he has these traits recognize those traits. That's the call of the psalmist here. Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name, and then he even says this, bring an offering and come into his court. So be willing to sacrifice your time, your things, your possessions uh, for him, because he's so worthy of that, because he alone is glorious in this way. Well, Scripture also narrates God's glorious actions. It doesn't just describe him with vocabulary. It narrates the things that he's done in the world throughout history. And he does a lot of these for his, his people Israel early on in the Old Testament. So John mentioned in his uh, excellent Lord's Supper talk a few minutes ago that, that this, uh, Israel's exodus from Egyptian slavery, the Passover, that uses the word glory a lot. So when they go through the Red Sea in Exodus 15, 1, uh, this is spoken of by uh, Moses as displaying God's glory. When they received the law, the Torah, God's instruction at Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, Um, glory attends that event. So in Exodus 24, 12, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. Remember, the people of Israel are all down gathered below. God has brought them here with his glorious cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. And now they're going to get his instruction. So Moses is to come up into the mountain so that God may, quote, give him the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment. He's going to give him scripture, right? He's going to give him instruction, Torah. Then in verse 15, Moses goes up into the mountain and the cloud covers the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and covered it for six days. So the initial giving of scripture is attended by glory. It reveals the glory of God as does the concluding paragraph in the book of Exodus, when God, they finally built the tabernacle, God's house, God's tent that he's going to dwell in. And they've done it according to all the instructions that they've been given from God. And now God descends uh, into uh, to, to earth to uh, occupy his tent, his tabernacle in their midst. And look what it says at the very end of Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the lord filled the tabernacle and moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the lord filled the tabernacle so god's actions are often described as being attended with glory he is a glorious god and the things he does in the world are glorious all right but i want you to note something here i want you to notice that the beneficiary of these divine actions is just as important. While these divine acts redound to the glory of God, they also greatly bless human beings, people, you and I, people that God created so that he might share the love inherent among the three persons of the Godhead that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enjoyed from before time began just throughout eternity. In Genesis uh, 1, 26, when humanity is created. God says, let us make man in our image, and let them, male and female, both made in his image, share our dominion over all creation. So God's just sharing the love. It's so good, it has to explode beyond the confines of the Trinity, you might say, and and go out to other created beings who can also glorify him. But it isn't just that God's on an ego trip or something like that. It does reveal his glory. Scripture does reveal God's glory, But it's not just about revealing God's glory, because the Word of God also reveals our good. It reveals God's glory, but also our good. What do we mean by this? Well, throughout the Bible, God has always desired the best for his human creation. He designed us not just to get by or hang on by a thread. He designed us to thrive, to have what the Hebrews called shalom. And shalom can be defined a lot of ways. It's a very expansive word. Here are some of the words that are often used to to define it, if you look it up in some uh, Hebrew lexicon. Things like wholeness, completeness, having all your needs met, peace, health, safety, even permanence. All of that's captured in the word shalom. In short, we might say shalom means genuine life. Really living, not just surviving, but thriving, and that's how God designed us. And in that light, I want you to notice the ways that Psalm 19 says God's word uh, helps us thrive. So let's just look down at some of the statements in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. God's Scripture revives our souls, our ourselves, our being, right? It gives wisdom. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Who doesn't want wisdom? And what about joy? The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing or bringing joy into your heart. Do you think of the the precepts of the Word of God, these do's and don'ts, as something which gives you joy? That's what the Scripture says. And then this idea of permanence. The Scriptures create in us, if we have a receptive heart, a fear of God. Um, a respect, a reverence for the Lord that he says, endures forever. So it goes beyond this life. There's something about the fear of the Lord that will endure eternally. And that's why the the psalmist finds God's word so desirable. Um, He he describes it as something that you would crave or long for or pine for. Uh, It's not some dreaded duty you just have to do because you have to or else. That, that's at least not the way at all Psalm 19 describes the Word of God, and, and neither does Psalm 119 and many of the other um, places where uh, writers are, are just uh, exulting in the glory, the, the wonder of being given uh, this thing called Scripture. So look, look at the desire inherent in the way the psalmist relates to God's Word. It hardly sounds like that of mere duty, of a slave just sort of living in dread of the master's voice, and maybe he's going to mess up, that's not the way it's described at all. In verse 10, he says, the rules of the Lord, the rules. How many of us love rules? The rules of the Lord are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. This is more like something the psalmist can't wait to discover. I can't wait to get back into my Bible and uncover these nuggets that are so rich and so enriching. Nothing Is more life giving than the word of God. Nothing is more life giving than the word of God. The word of God is what began this whole thing that we call the world. God said, Let there be light. And God said, Let there be this. And God said, Let there be light. And God said, Let us make man in our own image. The word of God is what creates life and it is what sustains life. And I think many folks have a tendency to view law, even God's law, In negative terms, as as just a bunch of grievous restrictions, killjoy, you know, buzzkill. Uh, We we would have a good life and good fun, but we got all these rules we got to follow. Rather than looking at God's laws as as life-giving nourishment. I mean, look at verse 10, the second half of the verse. The rules of the Lord are sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. All right? So the word of God is life-giving, and we should be especially interested in God's word during times like now. How comforting is it to know that the one who spoke the stars into existence has stooped to communicate with the likes of us, even to be, as the psalm uh, uh, concludes uh, down in verses 12 through 14, which we have not read, the conclusion of Psalm 19, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So, the one, the psalm begins with the heavens declare the glory of God, you know, just this cosmic wonder, stars and supernovae and uh, galaxies all over the place. And that being who created all of that is my rock and your redeemer, your rock and my redeemer. Now, hearing and doing God's word also is in the interest of other people, not just ourselves as believers but in other folks who don't yet know God, they don't have a relationship with God yet, they could benefit from hearing the word of God. Think of all the people walking around right now with just, hopefully they're not walking too far, hopefully they're in their houses, but anyway, walking around with extreme fear, extreme anxiety, who need the reliable promises of, of God. And his word is chock full of these. Only God's word is true, and I'm quoting now from Psalm 19, only God's word is sure, only God's word is perfect. And unlike many claims being made out there on social media, you know, regarding how to remedy, remedy uh, the coronavirus, um, God's word is actually reliable. You know, during pandemics, I've heard this now from several public health officials and, and, and medical experts, they worry about the spread of the pathogen, whatever that might be, but they worry just about as much about what they call infodemics. Not just the pandemic itself, but the infodemic that rides along on its back. And th- they mean by that this bad, unreliable, scientifically unsupported information that transmit, actually transmits faster than the virus. So there have uh, been claims you know, shared and reposted on Facebook, for instance, about how um, you can prevent uh, coronavirus inf- uh, uh, infection by uh, one of them was blowing, taking a blow dryer, putting it on hot and blowing hot air up your nose go for it. Doesn't work. So if you want to dry out your sinuses and have that problem too, go for it. Another one was even more ridiculous and that's drinking garlic water. Drinking garlic water, there's this claim, it's viral, is supposed to stop coronavirus infection. Now it would help with, uh, social distancing maybe, right? If we just could get people to drink garlic water for that purpose and take it seriously. I get it. People are afraid. People are anxious. But what if instead of all of these these tales, these rumors that are traveling at at, at viral speed that are really nothing more than false hope, what if um, all of the other faux saviors that people have always put their trust in long before the coronavirus outbreak, money, power, popularity, what if instead of all of that going viral, it were God's word that is going viral? Wouldn't that be incredible? But here's the tragedy. No one keeps God's word. Do you hear me? Everyone falls short. Not just the people in the other kind of church, not just the people down the street. You fall short. I fall short. The most devoted Christian you've ever met will be saved only because of something he didn't do. Something Jesus did. We'll talk more about that in a second everyone falls short. Even God's people, his own people, who have his scriptures, who can read of his glory, who can read of his mercy, who can read of his glorious actions in the world, even they don't always glorify him. We don't always glorify God. We glorify other things more than him, if we're honest. Psalm 19, verses 12 and 13, again, part of that concluding short paragraph, paragraph, Uh, doesn't treat sin as a possibility, but as an inevitability. Look what he says here. After talking about the revelation of God in nature and the revelation of God in Scripture, who can discern his errors? Talking about one's own errors. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. He's assuming that we have faults that have to be dealt with because we're all sinners. And everywhere in the Bible, everywhere in the Bible, this is the starting point. It's the axiom upon which the whole theology of the Bible is built. Never does scripture say that anyone accountable to God stands before him with a perfect record. First Kings 8:46 sums this up really well. For there is no one, there is no one who does not sin. Even Paul in Romans, in Romans chapter 7, talks about this. He he is careful to say that the law itself isn't the problem. You know, he'd been reared. On the law of Moses. He's a Jew who then, of course, becomes an apostle of Jesus. But look what he says here. He says the law, though it, it meant well and would be uh, effective it ha- if any of us kept it perfectly, um, it falls down and leaves a, a gaping hole in terms of our need before God, our standing before God, Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, yet if it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. So one of the roles of the law was to enumerate our sins, to show us that we are in in desperate need of something besides a righteousness based on perfect law keeping. Paul continues in Romans 7, he says, the very commandment that promised life, speaking of the law, proved to be death to me. Why? Because he never could keep it. This is Paul we're talking about, the Hebrew of Hebrews right? He's got quite a bit more to offer to God than a good many of the rest of us, I feel fairly confident saying. And then he says this down in Romans 7 a bit further in verse 14, that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin sold under this is paul talking in the present tense he's not talking about something that used to be the case with him in the present tense so what are we to do what are we to do how do we get out of this pickle the answer is of course jesus he takes our sins upon himself at the cross in romans chapter 8 verse 1 Thankfully, praise God, there is more to this story in Paul's writing here than what I said a second ago. Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's especially in this capacity, as rescuer, as redeemer, as savior, that we can appreciate our third point here. And that is that Jesus is the embodiment of divine revelation. He embodies it. He takes the principles and ideas and teachings, and and they are all subsumed under the personage of Jesus. He, He enfleshes these principles and brings them to a head. He embodies all divine revelation. Now, how do we connect this back to Psalm 19? Well, from the vantage point of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for believers who are looking back on all the biblical history leading up to the cross, Psalm 19, even, ultimately points to Jesus. You may be thinking, well, Psalm 19 never mentions Jesus or Christ. I didn't know that was a messianic passage. There's a sense in which everything in the Old Testament is messianic. How many times we read in the New Testament that all of that was pointing to Jesus in the law of the prophets and the writings, or that every prophecy has its yes in Jesus, right? So the first half of Psalm 19 uh, talks about the sun and the stars, but let me suggest to you that the heavenly bodies, the sun, the stars, all these lights in the heavens uh, on a a brilliantly clear night, these are merely pointing us to Jesus, who is actually the ultimate star, the ultimate light, the ultimate sun, S-U-N. Several passages use this language to talk about Jesus. Malachi 4.2, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, that's not S-O-N like your child, but the son, the heavenly body, it will rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. What about Revelation 22.16? I, Jesus, he's speaking here himself, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. There's two or three, you know, uh, Old Testament allusions here, but then he says this: "I am the bright morning star." Jesus is a—he's the sun in the heavens. He is, in a sense, a bright star uh, at night. Uh, and then in John eight twelve, and several other times in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses the word light to talk about him, and not just himself—not just light, but the light, like the sun or something. Jesus spoke to them, John eight twelve, saying, "I am the light of the world." whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. A little book Nick recommended to me that um, is is really helpful um, has an essay in it written by a guy named Daniel Ray, who's also the editor. Uh, The the essay is called Astronomy with Your Own Two Eyes. Look what he says here. I really find this uh, uh, edifying. He says, like the magi, you know, the so-called wise men in the birth of Christ stories, like the magi mentioned in Matthew's gospel, we have to begin with a single star. Remember, they were following the star in the east to, fi- to see the baby Jesus. He says, just like them, in a sense, we have to begin with a single star. It is really that simple. That star led them to Jesus, and I believe that is ultimately what all the stars should do. And the second half of Psalm 19 also points to Jesus, not just nature pointing us to Jesus, but the scriptures are all pointing to Jesus. The second half of Psalm 19, of course. Focuses on the word of God. And this makes sense. uh, I'm going to skip this one here. Um, Actually, I can't skip it. Even when we're not together, I I can't resist things. He is the image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, the firstborn of all creation. So this is back to the point about the creation, uh, the stars, all of that. By him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So it kind of makes sense if all creation is for him. It's for him. And he's the one in whom it's all holding together. It coheres uh, around and in Jesus. He's sort of the hub of the whole cosmos. It kind of makes sense then, doesn't it, that, that the heavens would point to him. Everything points to him. He created them. They're for him. He holds them together. But also the second half of Psalm 19, as I was saying, is talking about Scripture, and it points to Jesus. Of course, it focuses on the Word of God, but Christ is the ultimate expression of the Word of God. He is, in fact, so closely related to the Word of God that in John chapter 1, he is called the Word. You remember, the Word in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and then down in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, in case we had any idea who this is talking about. This is the enfleshed word, the embodied uh, logos, scripture walking around as a person, you might say. At least I think that idea is contained in in the theology that grows out of of John 1. Now, the reason that both scripture and also um, Jesus are called the word, quote-unquote, Is because both reveal God both reveal God Hebrews 1 beginning in verse 1 says long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers the Hebrew fathers right the people who were given the Old Testament the Israelites the Jews he spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son how does God speak to us through Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And he says, he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So seeing Jesus, interacting with Jesus, listening to Jesus teach, being healed by Jesus, all these stories read about in the four gospels. When people saw Jesus, they were literally seeing the exact imprint of God they're seeing the full glory of God they're seeing the divine one in the flesh and here is God's word his message coming to a head in this human being born in the eastern part of the Roman Empire uh, two millennia ago and so Jesus is the clearest plainest most complete picture of God all right if you want the clearest, plainest, most complete picture of God, most complete portrait of God, what you do is you read about Jesus. You get to know Jesus because he is the ultimate revelation of God. And as the ultimate revelation of God, Jesus brings together the two things we were talking about earlier. He brings together God's glory on the one hand and our good on the other. And they come together in the person, of Jesus Christ. John 1:14, after all, speaking of the glory that he brings, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. Like this is divine glory, the glory that's spoken about uh, regarding Yahweh, the Lord, in the Old Testament. Jesus showed the world that. So God's glory is being revealed in Jesus. But it's also true that our good Our ultimate good is being revealed in Jesus. In John chapter 10, verse 10, we read that it's in Jesus that we human beings can have what individuals and societies have been striving for and longing for, pursuing since the beginning of time or the beginning of their existence, and that is real, abundant life, thriving. I came, he says, that they, human beings, might have life, not just life, life abundantly. And so that's our good. Jesus embodies the revelation of God. And uh, by doing so, brings together God's glory and our good. So, how, how? How does that happen? How specifically did God's glory and our good come together in Jesus? Where precisely did these two great streams of biblical truth coalesce into the mighty river of the gospel? We find our answer in John chapter 12, and we'll close after reading this passage. John 12, Jesus speaking, beginning in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Remember, the cross is looming, it's imminent. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. to myself he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die and we know what that's talking about he's talking about the cross he'll be lifted up on a cross notice two things that was going to do his being lifted up on the cross his crucifixion would both glorify god and draw all humanity to himself our greatest good and god's great glory coalesce in the ultimate revelation from god to human beings, and that is Jesus Christ. Thanks a lot.